0: Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.
1: Let me offer my welcome. I'm Carla Hills, and I'm just thrilled to see so many friends in this audience And I don't have to tell this audience that uh, these are tumultuous times economically, politically, and technologically. And it's affecting all of our relationships. But in the headlines, and what is in our mind, is the US-China relationship. Now, Jan Barros told me that uh, I was to be brief, and. you know, I always follow the boss. <laughs> but I cannot refrain from saying that we have never had such a superb panel here, all with experience. Doug Paul, raise your hand, Doug. Not only was he uh, vice president of J.P. Morgan, China, but he was our unofficial envoy to Taiwan. And then I go to Ken Lieberthal, Evan Madero, and both of them were special assistants to the president for the national security. Ken uh, under President Clinton, working for President Clinton, and uh, Evan working for President Obama. And uh, not, not to omit Danny Russell, who uh, was assistant secretary of state for East Asia and again, a special assistant to the president for uh, the Asian arena. And last but not least, Susan Thornton, who uh, was the successor to Danny uh, Russell and uh, served, took over the responsibilities as assistant secretary of state for East Asia. So when I say we have a superb panel, you know that these people and you have their uh, resume are the very top of the ladder. We're proud of them and we are so grateful that you are all here. And their conversation will be tied together by the best moderator I've ever heard, Steve Orleans, our president. So Steve, you're on. Great, Carla, thank, thank you.
2: you. And let me just reiterate that we have got an incredibly distinguished panel. Um, let me start with a, um, you know, a question <clears throat> which will give you the opportunity to talk about your time in government and what was going on in US-China relations. So in the case of the four men, um, when you were senior directors for, uh, for Asia, and in Susan's case when you were Acting Assistant Secretary. What were the major issues in U.S.-China relations? And most importantly, what are the lessons in how you dealt with those issues then for today's U.S.-China relationship? Start with Doug where we're going chronologically from when they entered government, because as as Doug pointed out to me, he entered the earliest, but he didn't leave the earliest.
3: Well, thanks, and it it's great to be with all of you this evening. I um, got a lot of people to fill in the time slots. so I could do a memoir here uh, just out of my turbulent time in office managing relations in part with China uh, from the period 19, early 1989 through 1992, or late 92, early 93. And uh, I had the privilege of working directly under Brent Scowcroft, who's kind of the model of how to lead the National Security Council, but also under the leadership of President George H.W. Bush, who had the best funeral I've ever been to last November because there were so many good memories of his, of his life and time in office. And, um, and We had colleagues at the various departments like James Baker over at State who was a trusted and knowledgeable and hard-working guy, and at the time Dick Cheney at the Defense Department which was a different Cheney than the one we got to know a little later. And in that period, President Bush came in having served in China in the liaison office as the second chief of the liaison office in 19, basically 1973 uh, before he came back to the United States and uh, got into politics again. And he uh, really loved his time in China. He and his family had a great experience and, and he was really attached to it during the time he was vice president and I was serving under Ronald Reagan. I could always count on good meetings with Vice President Bush even though Reagan was sort of you know, in his own world on these things uh, because Bush really cared. And our instruction when he was elected president in his own right in 1988 was to prepare for him to make an early visit to China. The Emperor of Japan Hirohito had passed away, there was going to be a ceremony for his Departure right after Bush was inaugurated. He said, "I want to go to that funeral. Then I want to go right to see my old friend Deng Xiaoping uh, before it's too late and I can't see him anymore." And so we, he sent me off with a group to do the advance team work for that trip. And a lot was pregnant at that time. There was a lot of stirring in the the, uh, intellectual community in China, and I. Uh, Visited the embassy. We made the kind of formal arrangements one normally does. And then uh, uh, I had some private time with embassy officers who said, we need to go out in the parkland and talk. And we did. And they said, you know, we're not reporting here from Beijing some of what's happening. And you need to know, this is to me to come back with the White House, that there's a real fire building up below ground here in China. People are really fed up with corruption, leadership mistakes. This city is about to blow up. I was told this at the end of January in 1989. We came back and we saw the, the buildup, which eventually stumbled from event to event to the, the events of the Tiananmen Square massacre. And for me, then, to, to shorten the dialogue, the, the discussion a little bit. Um, I went through a kind of Groundhog Day. All of you know Bill Murray's film Groundhog Day. Well, Groundhog Day comes every 30 years. The first one was when we had uh, the June 4th incident in Beijing where we saw overnight a complete transformation of the public support for China or relations with China that had been built patiently from the Nixon to the Carter uh, through the Reagan years and institutional connections had been built. Budgets had been put in place for every agency, big and small, to have some liaison with China and to develop deep working relationships and friendships in China. With the gunfire at Tiananmen, we watched budget after budget remove those funds because no committee members, no. of any committee, of all the committees of Congress, we're going to permit money to be spent. And I saw in those days what I'm seeing today, which is the collapse of the support network for various forms of constructive relations between the peoples of China and the United States. And just to, to jump ahead again, we tried a couple of times to reach out to China, try to find ways of finding a meeting point to help our relationship on a more stable foundation, Uh, that did not go well for reasons that really were coming out of China and and from the collapse of regimes in Eastern Europe. I can't tell you the shock that went through the Chinese leadership over the assassination or execution of Romanian President Ceausescu. The leaders of China, the the eight old men who were the non-official leaders of China, uh, saw that film and froze up. And they stayed frozen really until 1994, when I was b- out of the out of the White House. We were unable really to build momentum in that relationship again until Deng Xiaoping himself, in '92 and thereafter, made the southern trip, and a strong effort to get the uh, China moving back in a reform direction.
4: Ken, thank you. Like. Uh, Doug, it's just a great pleasure to have the opportunity to participate in this panel with uh, colleagues who I respect so much and who have been in the line of fire uh, and uh, over a period of several decades. Uh, I had the advantage of two things. One, I served from 1998 through 2000, so the last two and a half years of President Clinton's second term. And by then, frankly, President Clinton had gotten to know all the leaders of Asia, gotten to know the leaders in China, and had a kind of theory of the case as to what we should be doing with China to move this relationship forward. And secondly, uh, the impeachment proceedings against the president had gained momentum and were actively being pursued. Uh, And therefore, he was reluctant to make any public appearances that focused on domestic issues because no matter what he wanted to talk about, every question was about a very sensitive and embarrassing situation. So he turned his full attention to foreign affairs. (coughs) and That was just terrific if you came in as a specialist in foreign affairs. He was especially focused on China. So it was ironically, while it was a tough time in US politics, it was a great time to be on the NSC. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and working on China. Uh, well, Steve asked for the, the, in a sense, the biggest issues that we had to deal with, and then what are the lessons for today from dealing with them? And as I thought about that question, frankly, the categories of issues haven't changed. The three biggest issues when I was in, on, uh, on the NSC were, one, uh, negotiating the US-China bilateral accession agreement China's entry into the WTO. In other words, economics and trade and trade what rules apply? How do you get the US Congress to think that's a good arrangement? How do you get the Chinese on board? Uh, And then how do you you work the entry into the WTO? So at the core of the economic and trade relationship. Second, cross-trade tensions. Uh, There were a variety of things that fed into that, but the most dramatic was when Chen shui was elected president in Taiwan, taking the Chinese totally by surprise. They thought he was going to lose, and frankly, our intelligence agencies had determined that based on their information, he was going to win, and they called it almost to the percentage point, the decimal point. The Chinese were so blown away by that result that Chen Shui-bian, who is really quite pro-independence, was now going to be the president of Taiwan, that it created an immediate crisis. Uh, and third, the accidental bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, uh, which uh, I would put in the category of uh, things that you never imagined would happen suddenly are at the center of your relationship with China. Right? And so the question is, how do you manage that? Let me give you, I'd uh, be happy to go into details on any of those if you wish, and that's in response to your questions. But let me just give the lessons for today from, uh, from those experiences. One economic and trade negotiations. It's much easier to negotiate nuclear arrangements, <laughs> to negotiate ceasefire in, uh, you know, in some civil war. When it comes to negotiating trade agreements, I say this with former USDR Carla Hills sitting right in front of me. Uh, uh, they are the toughest negotiations imaginable. And they always are because there's real money at stake. And everyone can figure out how much they're likely to lose in a worst case scenario. And every one of them that has serious stakes in it goes tooth and tongue to stop or to shape that relationship. So those are extremely tough on both sides. It's not only in the U.S. as much in China as in the U.S. Uh, the difficulties are especially great in terms of the domestic politics in each side. And navigating those frankly makes, to my mind, it's just something that any trade negotiator knows, which is that nothing is, is finalized until the whole deal is done and signed and teed up to get ratified on both sides. And before that, anything can change uh, because these things are just very tough. Uh, secondly, on cross-strait issues, uh, they are the most dangerous issues out there in this relationship. And since recently, we've all gotten accustomed to not worrying so much about cross-strait issues. They, you know, we've had a period of relative calm. Uh, you don't get on the wrong side of cross trade issues and avoid the potential for conflict. Uh, they are fundamental for any leader of China uh, and they are not so clear in U.S. politics at this point in time. So when, uh, when Chen was elected, uh, literally Sandy Berger, the national security advisor, gathered uh, uh, Stanley Roth, who was assistant secretary of state, who's sitting out here. And me and a couple of others, and flew us over to China with him uh, to assess what the Chinese leadership was going to do. And frankly, our assessment was they were so panicked that we had no idea what they were going to do. But it didn't look like it was going to be very sober, rational thinking. And the uh, kind of terminology of two men. Okay,
5: Uh,
4: and the terminology that we used to kind of ward it off but keep it ambiguous was that uh, we will not sit idly by if you take a kind of uh, measure that is uh, potentially going to lead to conflict can uh, give details later as you wish. Third is the unanticipated events and let me say the embassy bombing in Belgrade uh how that played out drove home four lessons that I think remain extremely important. One, uh, when there is a real crisis that emerges, the communications back and forth are often misread by the other side. So you think you've, you're communicating something very clearly, and they understand it as something as you're saying something very different. I had the chance to go back and forth with uh, who I knew on the other side ex post facto, and it was just amazing. We just crossing in the night, you know, all the way through this crisis. Secondly, establishing personal trust with pertinent key officials can potentially be crucial at preventing escalation when you're both at the point of an incident that could literally cause lives within hours. Uh, third, domestic political interests on both sides will slow down communications, will skew them. Uh, to advance their own causes. Crises don't stop that from occurring in either place and pose real problems. And last and finally, that given the lack of full factual knowledge, (coughs) uh, the dots are connected by underlying assumptions about what your long-term intentions are. Uh, And so it is a huge problem when the assumption is that your long-term intentions are to deny the other side uh, it's, uh, it's basic goals, uh, that they regard as quite legitimate. Let me stop there.
2: Danny, either your time as Senior Director or
6: Assistant Secretary, okay. since you held both. All right, well, thanks Steve. And Carla, as you said, it's a good panel, but it's yeah. even a more astonishing <laughs> audience Do oh, <laughs> I see Stanley Roth, who is both yeah. Assistant Secretary yeah. and Senior Director, but a personal hero of mine who I haven't seen for a while, I have Sam Locklear, tremendous uh, patriot. Um, I was brought over to the NSC by Jeff Bader, who's here in spirit, on the very first day after President Obama was inaugurated in 2009. Uh, For the first two, almost two years, I was the director for North Korea, South Korea, Japan, and then became senior director. I left in uh, the summer of 2013, uh, in the second term, moved over to the State Department and replaced Kurt Campbell as assistant secretary. Um, my, my one real claim to fame is that I successfully ensured that uh, the people who succeeded me in the NSC and in the State Department were better than I was, and I'm very proud of that. Um, so at the beginning of the Obama administration uh, there was a strong conviction which really emanated from the president that uh, the economic and security interests of the United States required us to engage more uh, actively in the Asia Pacific region in general, uh, and that we needed to reallocate uh, our priorities and our you know, resources and mind share uh, so as not to be so absorbed in the Middle East uh, and in order to be more engaged in the Pacific. Uh, and I certainly had the view, I think it was pretty widely shared in the administration, that the Bush administration had focused intently on China and made Asia a sort of adjunct of China policy. We thought that, uh, that China needs to be a component of our Asia strategy. And that meant uh, in strengthening our alliances, it meant getting our own house in order, it meant uh, looking for ways to participate influentially and meaningfully in regional and multilateral institutions. Uh, it meant uh, improving our relations with uh, some of the other emerging powers, India, uh, Indonesia, Vietnam, etc. Uh, it meant focusing hard on the economic agenda because after all, the US was digging out of a deep recession. And it meant finding a way to ensure that our values uh, were represented in our engagement in a way that was sustainable and not just preachy and not, uh, not phony, and not an obstacle to actual progress. Uh, we had you know the usual uh, baker's dozen of problems uh, with China from South China Sea and North Korea, cross streets issues to economic issues, IPR theft, cyber, etc., to the treatment of American citizens, journalists, uh, human rights. Sort of a, it's the, a familiar list we also had the, the opportunity and the challenge of helping to steer or influence the transition from hu jintao to xi jinping who we knew would become the next secretary general next president uh, and we embarked on a number of strategies including th- the biden trip to china and uh, xi jinping's return visit as vice president to try to establish those connections and and get a head start. I'd say in terms of lessons learned for me, it was really a constant quest uh, to find ways to generate leverage uh, to deal with China, find ways to translate that leverage into action agreements, uh, uh, processes, and find ways to translate those those agreements into sustainable Uh, solutions as opposed to just paper solutions Uh, and that's the kind of challenge that we will always face in dealing with China and it's a greater challenge as China grows wealthier and and stronger and more uh, determined or confident. I think in terms of where we are now uh, we're in the middle of an experiment and we really don't know how it will end. The experiment is the application of brute force Against uh, the largest most populated country at, at practically uh, its great its moment of greatest ac- ac- ascendancy uh, and thus far, although the administration has generated a tremendous amount of leverage, it is entirely unclear that that will result in progress, and that that progress will be durable. The last point I'd make is to build on something that Ken said it's not just personal relations. It's not just friendships across the Pacific. Um, it, the fact is that unless people in the other camp want to do, for their own reasons, the sorts of things that you have agreed, got them to agree to, or that you're asking them to do, uh, you will find it, uh, at best, a steep uphill battle. And if you can find a way of harness harnessing your agenda to things, and the US-China climate change agreement is a class A case, to things that China, for its own reasons, pollution, uh, was inclined to do, you have a fair chance of engineering a success.
7: Evan. Well, thank you very much, Steve, and thanks to Carla and all of you for joining us here today. Um, I served at the NSC from 2009 to 2005, first as director for China, also brought over by Jeff Bader, um, and then, of course, as senior director for Asia. Let let me make three points. Uh, First, the um, moment in international politics, the global economy, and U.S. foreign policy really shaped our China policy from 2009. Um, When Barack Obama was elected, There was this feeling that U.S. foreign policy uh, really needed a makeover. The president was very focused on the challenges of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? America was involved in two very intensive wars. The global economy was careening towards a depression, um, and that obviously had to be a major, major priority. But also, we had inherited a U.S.-China relationship that I would argue is f- uh, of a fundamentally different character. In other words, it was a relationship that was now global. It was no longer a bilateral relationship focused, rightly, on the issues of trade, Taiwan, human rights, non-proliferation—sort of the traditional issues of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. But rather, um, China had risen quite rapidly. The Chinese were sort of, you know, beginning to feel it a little bit. They were questioning whether or not the U.S. was going to play as dominant a role as it had in previous years. And so we had inherited this relationship where on the major global challenges, nonproliferation, of, of course the global economic crisis, uh, climate change, China was going to have to be at the table. And a constructive relationship with China, or at least cooperation from China episodically, was critical to those solutions. So that that context very much shaped the approach toward China. Uh, And that's why we always talked about the sort of mix of cooperation and competition, because we were acutely aware that the challenges we were facing from China were growing exponentially. Um, But we didn't know sort of what mix of cooperation and competition was going to work to elicit good behavior, working with us on global governance, global public goods, and solving bilateral problems versus competing in those areas where we disagreed. So the moment had a lot to do with our our approach to China policy. Point number two. Um, In terms of lessons learned, I would say from my six years at the NSC, one big lesson I take away is that cooperation with China is hard um, and doesn't always work. We, The Obama administration, I think, had a pretty mixed record, uh, to be very fair. Um, the areas where we got meaningful cooperation from China were on Iran and working on the Iranian nuclear program. and That was both work within the U.N. Security Council and um, bilateral work with the Chinese to try and use the sort of mix of pressure and diplomacy to that to get the Iranians to the negotiating table. Um, The climate deal obviously in 2004 is another signature success uh, in which, you know, as Danny rightly pointed out, we sort of used a mix of the Xi Jinping-Obama relationship combined with, you know, a very intensive diplomatic effort all of government to help the Chinese understand why this was in their interests. Uh, But there are also some very meaningful issues where we didn't get progress from China. That was pretty frustrating. Uh, On the cyber issue, and specifically cyber-enabled economic espionage. On maritime issues, Chinese sort of behavior uh, in the East China Sea, South China Sea. And then on North Korea. I can't tell you the amount of time that Danny and I spent trying to get the Chinese to sort of work with us more on a pressure effort. to create the conditions under which the North Koreans might think about re-embracing denuclearization. Ultimately, it wasn't very fruitful, but those are issues where we spent an enormous amount of time. And one of the things about the Obama administration is very distinct from President Trump, was we built this, what we thought at the time was this very smart, uh, very robust infrastructure of dialogue. Of course, you had Obama and Xi meet a lot and talk a lot. Right. In the eight years of the Obama presidency, you had Obama and Xi meet more times than all of President Obama's predecessors combined, so a lot. Uh, we, Danny and I created a channel between Tom Donilon and his sort of rough equivalent in China. We had the strategic and economic dialogue. We had dialogues on Asia Pacific. Um, of course, lots of numerous defense dialogues under the premise that personal relationships robust conversation would elicit more cooperation. It's unclear whether or not that's the case for precisely the reasons that Danny talked to. The Chinese didn't really feel that it was in their interest to do so. Final point, Taiwan. So in the Obama administration, we had, the, we, we had one very fortunate circumstance, which was the cross-strait relationship after Ma and jeou was elected in 08, stabilized and stabilized immediately for a variety of reasons that I'm happy to uh, get into. Um, but that allowed us to test a proposition that the Chinese had been telling us for the past the previous thirty years, which was if you only solve the Taiwan issue, everything else is possible. But unfortunately, we learned everything else wasn't possible because we did create stability in the cross-strait relationship due to a lot of good, smart diplomacy in Washington, Beijing, and and Taipei. But it, that didn't sort of open up the pearly gates of getting the Chinese to work with us on the issues that matter to us. And so you know, during the Obama years, because of this transition from Hu to Xi, the Chinese began to see the gap in relative capabilities close. They felt that they were stronger. They had more global credibility. And I think they were beginning to explore what the boundaries of that could be.
0: Well, I guess it falls to me, I'm not sure if my mic is working, um, but it falls to me to uh, take care of introducing you to the China policy under the Trump administration, since that's sort of when I come into this and when I, I fortunately got to take over from uh, Danny Russell, who sadly departed early on in the Trump administration. Um, so what I would say is that it's a little bit different. My discussion here from the other four predecessors, because generally speaking, previous White Houses had what you would be able to call, at least in rough outlines, a China policy. Um, but you know, we we really don't have a China policy. We really still don't have a China policy. And this administration, it's no surprise you've read about it in all the different books, came in to office quite unprepared across the board, including on foreign policy, and uh, came in more with an attitude or a narrative. And I'm glad Steve talked about narratives because that's really what had come uh, from the campaign with Donald Trump into office on China is is a narrative and an attitude. Um, And, you know, we early on saw signs of this uh, when we, uh, saw the call between Donald Trump and Tsai Ing-wen in Taiwan in December before the inauguration, sort of unprecedented direct contact between uh, the leader of Taiwan and the and the well at that point president-elect of the United States. So we knew we were in for some unusual and difficult kind of turbulent uh, times. I think at that time, of course, the Chinese were looking kind of high and low for who it was gonna be in the administration that was going to be a conduit for them to get messages and information to the top, how were they gonna work with this new administration that didn't really have um, any kind of outline of a policy, but that had a very negative attitude, obviously, toward China coming off the campaign. And I think uh, that uh, search initially seemed to be satisfied by, uh, their connection to Jared Kushner, uh, who they'd been talking to and who they'd um, met several times and I think they felt like uh, was going to be able to at least pass messages up if things got, um, uh, you know, out of control in their view that they could reach someone in the administration and, and express their concerns. Because I think at that time, too, it wasn't clear sort of how the cabinet was going to take shape. and. Who was going to be in it, whether anyone was going to have any kind of background or experience in dealing with China. Uh, You know, once the administration came into office, you know, my direct contact was, of course, with, uh, with Rex Tillerson, but there were a lot of meetings at the White House. And, you know, Donald Trump clearly really focused only on the trade deficit. I mean, that was mentioned earlier, and I think it's clear that that's pretty much still the case, um, that he was very focused coming off the campaign on the trade deficit, on the economic competition with China, but mostly on the trade imbalance. And he wanted coming right into office to sort of go after that issue. But he also had been told by President Obama in one of his outgoing meetings that, North Korea is the most urgent national security issue that you face. And I was unable to do anything about it, and a whole long line of previous administrations were unable to tackle this issue. So that kind of, I think, sparked the imagination of the incoming president. And he really did put his new national security team to work on coming up with an approach to North Korea that he thought he might be able to sort of per- pursue and do something very different. And I think just it, it kind of appealed to him. So, you know, we started off gener- generating a policy on North Korea that would look pretty familiar to most of the people up here on the stage and most of you. Um, you know, a bottom up process, considering various options, rigorous interagency meetings, and then finally came up with this policy of maximum globalized pressure. Um, and and pursued that policy in 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 a very familiar way. All the time not really ever having the same kind of approach to a China policy for the administration. But because China became so important in the global maximum pressure campaign on North Korea, President Trump's attention sort of shifted from you know, the focus on going after China on trade to the hope, help that he hoped he was going to get from them on North Korea. And that took us through pretty much um, all the way through fire and fury, you know, a lot of meetings with China. The first Mar-a-Lago mean, meeting was mainly devoted to discussions of Korea. Um, and, and all the way through the end of uh, 2017, and you had the turn to diplomacy in North Korea, and you also had the turn to, you know, the sort of more focus on trade and economics in the um, China relationship. And um, I think you could see very clearly if you track the timing that, you know, right after Donald Trump's summit meeting with Kim Jong-un in Singapore, all, five days later, basically, the tariffs went on on China. So, you know, I think basically the idea here is that Donald Trump's got North Korea now in his own personal control and it's time to move on and take on the China challenge, which he still sees, frankly, mainly in terms of the economic competition and the trade deficit. So uh, the other thing that's unusual, though, about the Trump administration is that there is, um, is almost no structure. So while you have a president that's very focused on this trade deficit issue and has tasked his economic team to go and take care of that, you don't really have anybody running a, a, a framework for a very complicated China policy that basically is um, involves almost every issue that we have in international affairs. And so while you're devoting a lot of attention to the trade and economic issue, there's not really any high-level focus or coordination on the rest of the pieces of the relationship, which is how we've ended up with kind of every agency running their own very kind of uh, independent China policy and how we've ended up with a lot of Chinese confusion about what is the U.S. doing, what is our approach, what is the goal here, and, um, you know, how can we work with these people. So I think we're still in that stage, and I'll just leave it there come back to it.
2: That's a perfect segue into kind of my first question. I think they're all great answers. Uh, the knowledge this, on this stage is, is extraordinary. Um, you all worked on the preparation of national security strategies when you were part of the, the NSC. In December of 2017, um, the national security strategy called China a revisionist power and a strategic competitor. How, Give us some insight on how these strategies are prepared. And your view is China a revisionist power? And when did it become a strategic competitor? I didn't assign this to anyone, so who wants to address this one?
3: Well, let me just <laughs> offer first thoughts since I was up first before. The, um, when the Chinese come around and ask me about this all the time, because Chinese take these documents very seriously. I say to them the best way to view an administration's national security Security strategy is through the rear view mirror because you're never gonna see it again. It'll never be out there, it's always back there. Now in this case, we had this characterization of China and Russia as revisionist powers. Fairly recently, the person responsible for the report and the person who drafted the report made a public appearance at Pennsylvania and we're asked the same question, what is the meaning of this term revisionist power? And they said they did not know the answer. <laughs> so if you're asking us <laughs> to, to give you the answer, I think we're at a disadvantage to the authors of the report. This, this was an example, I think, of, of a political effort trying to set a new tone, trying to sound very th- um, theoretical, sound very strategic, and yet lacking the structure and the, and the Assortment of subordinate policies that would make it mean something. (coughs) Susan, you were there then. Was that a clear draft?
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, it it was written by a very narrow circle of people and cleared uh, very quickly. You know, I have been basically of the opinion that it wasn't really a, a top down effort. This isn't something that you know, the president was super focused on. It was something that his national security advisor at that time, H.R. McMaster, was very focused on. Um, And, you know, H.R. McMaster did try to institute more processes, regular processes, you know, coming from uh, the military. I think he was wanting to institute something that was like a policy process. And this, he thought, would be an overarching framework Uh, I think it got, you know, uh, hijacked a little bit, I would say. A little. Um, Yeah, a little bit. And you know, I think it's, what I've said uh, to people is, you know, the Chinese don't like it when people write books about their strategy based on the documents they write for their internal audiences. Books about things like a hundred year strategy to take over the world, for example, and I try to say to them, this is a sort of internal political document as well, even though it's obviously public, but it's, it's, it's meant for a different purpose than actually setting out you know, a new strategy or a new uh, underlying theme of, a, along the lines of which every single U.S. government agency is now supposed to orient its work or reorient its work, as the case may be.
2: Ken and Evan, or all of you want to comment. Go ahead. Ken, Danny, and then Evan.
4: All right. Two quick comments. I'm sorry, is this mic working or not? I was. Yes, yes, okay. uh, Two quick comments. One is I have not seen any evidence that President Trump has used any of the phraseology uh, or analytical assumptions of this strategy. He remains focused on the trade deficit. And uh, so it's kind of passed him by, number one. Uh, Number two, on the question of what is a revisionist country or who has revisionist goals, China clearly wants to have a larger role. They want to redefine some of the terms that we have long used uh, in in the uh, United Nations and elsewhere. They don't want to overturn the structure, but they're bigger players and they want it to be more sensitive to their interests and their views and more respectful or to respect more the way we they go, go about things. Danny? Uh, well, just oh. One last second. Sure. would say, and Donald Trump wants to change the way we go about things, too, including the definitions and how we treat past agreements and so forth. Uh, so, in a sense, we've got two leaders, leaders Xi Jinping and Donald Trump, Trump, each of which came into, into office wanting to make big changes. Uh, to label one revisionist and the
6: other somehow
4: or other not revisionist, it sounds to me like a not very useful uh, distinction to make.
6: So uh, having a strategy is a good thing. Having a microphone is also a good thing. Uh, <laughs> but having a, a, strat- having a paper, and national security strategy document uh, or a microphone, doesn't mean that you have a strategy. What? is particularly important is whether the national security apparatus the the departments of government uh, and the president are working in tandem, are working towards common purposes, are communicating with each other and uh, they were in 2010 and 2015 when the Obama administration issued two different national security strategies. Um, that I think is what Uh, was important and gave us a certain amount of oomph. Uh, When when there's a real disconnect between the President and the apparatus, uh, and as Susan described, uh, within the apparatus, then having that piece of paper really doesn't get you anywhere. It's important to note that there is both a classified and unclassified national security strategy. And one of my uh, concerns with the product in 2017, when, which was in development while I was still in the State Department, was that it uh, misallocated some of the terminology. Uh, what's the reason that you want to call out China and essentially publicly define it as an adversary, if not an enemy? What, what are you trying to achieve that way? It's, there's no inhibition and no restrictions and no, no cost for discussing China in very straightforward terms in a classified document that will help you coordinate internally. Um, there's an indoor voice, there's an outdoor voice. The last point I'd make with respect to, well, I won't get into the revisionist question per se, but that um, the fewer channels of communication, the, the less uh, practical cooperation there is uh, between the US and China the greater China's incentive to try to gain a decisive strategic advantage in global governance, even if that's only to protect its interests. I'm not saying that cooperating with China is going to turn it into a docile uh, pussycat, but it is clearly removing incentives for China to uh, color within the lines. Uh, when we cease uh, communication and coordination.
7: Steve, I think that the key point that this discussion about the national security strategy brings out is that for China policy to work well across administrations, there there are some fundamental elements. In particular, you need a good process, a process that's both bottom-up and top-down, and that means you have principals committee meetings, deputies committee meetings, interagency policy committee meetings, the kinds of things that all of us would chair, um, to debate and discuss among all the stakeholders in the government, so you need a good process. You need priorities, and the only way that those priorities come about is through this good process, and you sort of send those up to the principals and they make recommendations to the president. Um, and number three, you need sort of personalities, people in in administration that are really invested uh, in China policy. The NSS is a vehicle for all of those. I mean, in the Obama administration, I remember very distinctly Jeff came to me and he said, "Okay, Evan, they're drafting the NSS. Draft up two paragraphs on China. So you know, sit down on my computer, tap it out, uh, give it to Jeff. He redlines it for all of you that know Jeff. That's that's his thing. Thankfully, it was much better text after Jeff's input." And then it goes into this process where the deputies get together and debate strategy. So the NSS can be very important as a tool for internal debate. It forces everybody to come around the table and not talk about sort of the minutia of how are we going to review the talking points on the Secretary of State's upcoming trip with the Chinese Foreign Minister, but talk about some of these strategy issues. And then to Danny's very good point, then what do we say publicly how do you use the nss as a mechanism for communication so the nss can be important for both internal functions as well as communication i don't think that happened in the, in, in the uh with the trump administration but on this question of revisionism i think this is an important question and so when people ask me is china a revisionist state i say yes and no because china in 2019 has one foot in and one foot outside of the system. On issues like maritime issues, right, South China Sea and East China Sea, human rights, its implementation of its WTO commitments, uh, it has pretty bad behavior. It, It really doesn't like some of these rules and norms and doesn't want to agree to them. There are other issues where it sees that its interests absolutely are aligned with agreeing with dominant rules, norms, and institutions and participates. And I think China is very much in a sort of transition phase where it's trying to figure out what's in its interest and what's not. What's a challenge, I think, is when the U.S. looks more revisionist than China, it undermines that calibration process. Now, just because the U.S. is revisionist, and I'm not just talking about Trump, right? Think about concepts like responsibility to protect, R2P for the foreign policy experts among us. This is a very revisionist concept because it undermines one of the most basic institutions at the core of international relations: state sovereignty. So this is a sort of complicated process, but nonetheless, I think there, you know, there are good reasons to be concerned about how China, what kind of rising power China is going to be, how is it going to use its newfound economic, military, Mm -hmm. diplomatic capabilities. And are those going to undermine U.S. interests? And I think there are lots of ways where those interests, even as China rises, uh, where those interests converge. But it takes time and effort and hard work to get there. And there are also areas where they diverge. And I think it's important upon the U.S. and its allies to sort of set those limits. Terrific answers.
1: The, the,
2: The head of policy planning, a job occupied by some of America's great foreign policy thinkers, including George Kennan, Les Gelb, Winston Lord, Richard Haas, and Anne Marie Slaughter, who actually was interviewing the head of policy planning at that point. And she said, in China we have an economic competitor, an ideological competitor with a global reach that many of us didn't expect decades ago. I think it is also striking that for the first time we will have a great power competitor that is not Caucasian. That is not Caucasian. Wow. <laughs> she better study some history. She then went on to say foreign policy experts should take the rose-colored glasses off when it comes to China. How should we think about those comments? You've all served in government. This the head of policy planning obviously is talking about this with people.
0: How should we think about those. We shouldn't. I mean, the one unfortunate thing is that this uh, comment has gotten a lot more play among the 1.4 billion people in China than it has among the 330 million people in the United States, and I think that's, um, you know, really, really unfortunate because I don't think that many people in the U.S. would subscribe to this kind of statement, and I don't think it accurately really reflects what's going on between the U.S. and China. But
2: does it accurately reflect what's going on in the State Department or in the NSC that we're talking about a
7: non Caucasian competitor? I mean, Steve, I mean, as you know, one of the challenges we face in interpreting the Trump administration is there is no process. It's not clear whether or not policy planning plays much of a role in supporting the Secretary of State. It's unclear whether or not the Secretary of State Uh, is part of a broader principles committee process. Does does that process actually work? Um, But to Susan's point, I mean, framing the US-China relationship as a clash of civilizations um, serves, does no one any good um, in the sense that it suggests that there is sort of, this is a sort of Cold War-like ideological competition that I don't think is supported by the facts. And it also puts you down a pathway, if you believe this is a civilizational contest and competition, that leads you down a pathway toward a highly, highly competitive relationship that I don't think is in U.S. interests.
6: What I'd say is, look, the issue is not rose-colored glasses. The issue is looking at the world through a nativist, uh, America-first lens that views Allies as freeloaders and competitors as enemies. And that takes you instantly to a very bad and a very unsustainable place. That's setting aside the racism uh, component of the comment. And it's also setting aside a little historical uh, factoid, which, as I remember, middle of last century, there was something of a tussle between the United <laughs> States and a non Caucasian power in Asia.
2: We've got an enormous amount of experience negotiating directly with the Chinese government on this stage. Uh, Seventeen days ago, the Trump, uh, the, the the, it's been the administration claims the Chinese agreed to a deal and then walked away from it. What do you think happened? Does this sound consistent with the way the Chinese negotiate? Anybody want to take that one, Ken?
4: Uh, Is this mic working? I keep getting different. It is is working. Okay, good. Okay. Uh, Let me give you the WTO experience, just briefly, as as an example of what happens Uh, when we negotiated WTO agreement with China. This is a bilateral accession agreement. Uh, It turns out that that agreement not only was negotiated in English. But had never been translated and circulated to the officials who thought they should have a major input into it. Uh, they learned the content of that draft agreement. When Zhu Wung ji came to Washington, he hoped to sign the agreement. In fact, that did not happen, frankly, are bad. And then someone in the White House, I've never learned who. Put the entire agreement on the White House website. Uh, And it was read by Chinese in Hong Kong and Beijing, and they exploded. Uh, And it got Zhu Rongji in great trouble. So after that, you had to backtrack. I mean, you know, all kinds of things still had to get uh, renegotiated. Uh, It is clear that. you have to have the support of the very top guy to do the negotiations in the first place. But then there is a process to get this actually nailed down. And again, nothing is settled until everything is settled. And so I'm sure every one of us has run into situations where we thought we had something nailed down, and then suddenly is open again on the Chinese side. And believe me, they've run into the same thing with us. Uh, and by the way, we saw an example of that when uh, Liu Ho was here. Uh, met with President Trump in the Oval Office. <laughs> president Trump somehow allowed cameras to stay in the room. Uh, and So all of this ended up on YouTube. Uh, and President Trump told Lighthizer, who was there saying, you know, we've got MOUs that are very detailed, firm commitments, et cetera, et cetera. And the President sat there and said, I don't like MOUs. Throw them out there, no good. I want agreements. <laughs> right? I'm sorry, I think Yoho was uh, taken aback. <laughs> and so was Robert Lighthizer. Uh, these things happen. And so to uh, toss out everything because of that is, and do it publicly is, is frankly uh, not very constructive. Doug?
3: Well, this, this incident was the second incident where the President reversed his own negotiator's mm-hmm. position having watched Lou Dobbs on Fox TV the night before, 1st May of last year, dissecting and dismissing the agreement that Mnuchin and Ross had brought back from Beijing with Lighthizer. And then this year, when Liu Hu was sitting there talking and Lighthizer was talking about MOUs, the President repeated what he would heard on TV the night before from Lou Dobbs, how agreements are never as good as MOUs. And so Lighthizer flipped right in front of the cameras. Yet this process just is not worthy of serious consideration. Now we had a lot of weight has been put on the argument that the Chinese refused to be bullied into passing legislation, that if they made an agreement, they would keep their agreement and they shouldn't be forced to pass legislation. I look at that and say, who thinks that legislation matters in China? It's the Communist Party. If they issue a state council directive, that's as good as you're going to get. You put it in legislation, it doesn't make a difference when it comes to the court's implementation of what the party in the locality or the center want to do. So this is a false issue in my mind. And I'm a little bit suspicious that somehow it was introduced to poison the chalice, to make an agreement that some of the parties to the agreement did not want get rejected.
2: Do you think they didn't want an agreement?
3: Some of the people yeah. did not want to agree. I guess because
2: I know there are a bunch of journalists here who would want to ask
7: this question, so I'll just ask it. How long do you think the tariffs are going to stay on? Oh, I think we should expect tariffs in the U.S.-China relationship for years going forward. I think this is sort of part of the new normal of the U.S.-China relationship. I think it's even if a new president gets elected in 2020, I think taking these tariffs off are going to be politically very, very difficult to do. But let, I want to come back to this um, negotiation question very briefly because it's often and rightly said that Chinese are tough negotiators. But sort of what does that mean, right? Any good negotiator is a tough negotiator. I'm sure Carlo was a super tough negotiator, I, right? I, can, I can
3: testify to that, that.
7: Right. Is. <laughs> Both internally and externally. So what does it mean to be a good negotiator? So I think this is what I think it means from my experience, that the conditions under which you can get a deal from the Chinese are actually really, really hard. Number one, you need a sense of urgency on both sides. Number two, both sides need to believe that the negotiation is in their interest. Number three, you need people that are empowered on both sides to get things done. Number four, you need both sides to meet really frequently because the amount of time and political space you have, generally speaking, is pretty limited. And lastly, you need political leaders at the top that are committed to getting a deal. And it's very, very hard to get all five conditions present at any one time. And I think that's why on a variety of issues that we in the Obama administration were frustrated on, North Korea, cyber, maritime, etc., it was simply because the Chinese increasingly didn't think it was in their interest, they didn't believe that it was a sense of urgency, it creates an enormous sense of frustration on the U.S. side. And that's why people do things like, naming and shaming China publicly, uh, taking unilateral actions to penalize China. Because you're trying to sort of, you know, if you don't, auto- uh, um, if you don't have those conditions present, uh, you have to try and gin them up. And it's a very difficult thing to do. And then oftentimes by taking an action to try and gin up a Chinese interest or sense of urgency, it, you, you, you um, undermine the very process.
0: Yeah, I, I would just follow, sorry. I would just follow on that and say that um, at a recent dialogue with the Chinese, this question came up, which is, you know, China, there's a narrative now that talking to the Chinese doesn't get you anywhere, it doesn't ever produce any results. And so we said to the Chinese, you know, why is it that um, you never want to get anything unless we create a crisis, and then when we create a crisis, then it appears that we're pressuring you and that's bad for your domestic political process to get an agreement. But it seems like that's the only thing that ever works. So you've created this kind of self-fulfilling negative uh, uh, situation, and why don't you engage with us when we first raise a problem, and then it'll be much easier to resolve it. Well, they didn't have, they kind of scratched their heads and said, yeah, that's true, and they didn't have a good answer. So there is, (laughs) you know, some. Was was
2: WTO accession created by a crisis in China, by a crisis in the US-China relationship?
0: Uh, well, how many years did that take?
2: It took years, but it ultimately got done. And I think years. the narrative that China failed to comply with WTO is not entirely accurate.
0: And I don't agree with the narrative that you can't get anything done and there can't be any results from dealing with the Chinese. But I think that this is an, an, a, there's a reason why this has come up yep. in people's minds, right? Well,
6: mention two things if I could. One, Carla, correct me, but Mike Froman loved to tell a story that. Uh, We still have tariffs against some European chicken part as a legacy of a dispute from over autos from 1967. So and trucks. Okay. So it's a lot harder to take the tariffs off than it is to put them on. Um, I'd observe that the you know the Chinese have been sending uh, delegations of scholars and former officials and so on. Uh, to the United States at a much faster pace in the last two years than in the previous forty uh, try, reconnaissance missions trying to figure out what the hell we 're up to what to expect and uh, f- for some time the, uh, over the last two plus months, the key question that I keep hearing is what does us china relationship look like the morning after a trade deal? Are things going to get better and it 's plausible to imagine that for the standing committee of the Politburo, for the leaders in China, uh, facing this draft text immediately before Liu He's return to Washington, presumably to put some of the final touches on it, that uh, they got cold feet when they saw uh, the combination of signals, the tweets from the president, the determination on the US side to publicize every jot and tittle of the agreement, Uh, and characterize it as a victory over China. Uh, The actions against Huawei across the board. So one could easily imagine that sitting in Zhongnanhai uh, people started thinking, do I really want to own this? Uh, Am I going to have a problem? Is the party going to have a problem uh, with perceptions? And hence uh, a redacted version returned to uh, Washington,
3: Steve, going back to your question about how, how long will the tariffs last? I, th- I'm, I have the dark prediction three months from now and six months from now and a year from now, the commentators are all going to say it wasn't so bad, and it'll become like the wallpaper. we're going to live with it, and it's going to be very hard, as uh, Evan said, politically to remove them when nobody feels any particular pain about them being there. And so I think we've got a long time ahead.
2: The pain that farmers feel, yeah. the pain look, that, a that so many Americans are going to feel is really significant. I'm not sure that the political pressure on this administration is not going to build to the point that before the 2020 elections, it's going to be necessary to remove those tariffs.
6: But, Steve, it's not a binary question. There's dialing from 20 percent to 5 percent. There's exempting certain products. There's on commodities, waivers, there's once you've of got food.
2: tariffs, you know, whether it's energy or agriculture, you become price uncompetitive. So the soybean farmers, the corn farmers in the middle of this country are losing that market. And their view is they're not losing it for 2019; they're losing it forever because others are going to become the preferred suppliers. Um, lightning round, because I want to open the floor to questions. So this we'll only have one person answer, and then um, uh, try to make them real brief. I guess the first one is for Evan. Uh, or Danny, because you were both there, did we react strongly enough in 2013 when China started building on the reefs in the South China Sea?
7: You were senior director, yeah. Danny. <laughs> <laughs> and then let's ask Admiral Locklear. Yeah, here.
6: Look, um, for us, first of all, this is the secret of the boiling frog. You don't notice how hot the temperature has become uh, <laughs> until you're scalded. but remember that the issue was uh, not the rocks. It was rules. It was would there be a uh, a normative uh, approach by China and all of the claimants. There were no angels here. The U.S. wasn't out to defend Vietnam or Malaysia's claim. We were out to try to ensure that the Uh, operations in the maritime space and the operations or the interactions over the disputed territories were consistent with international law and good neighborliness. So a big part of our strategy was diplomatic and a high degree of of action and engagement uh, uh, in the East Asia Summit and other forums on a bilateral, multilateral basis. A good part of our effort was demonstrative. Um, was ensuring that everyone could see, including China, that the U.S. would be undeterred, would sail and operate and fly, uh, did not accept uh, declared, unilaterally declared aid is in the East China Sea, and so on, uh, and tried to ensure that there would be uh, pressure, political pressure, and reputational pressure on China to uh, observe the decision of the Law of the Sea Tribunal. And Duterte um, put a uh, a gaping hole in that strategy.
2: Okay, this is lightning round, so you have to be real brief because I want to open it. Um, If these were Americans being arrested, not Canadians, in retaliation for the detention of the CFO of Huawei uh, to be extradited to the United States, what would the United States do?
3: We may find out when they. Transfer her to the American courts,
0: <laughs> and Americans are
3: picked so wh- up. So, what, what do we do?
2: Anybody have a diplomatic suggestion?
3: Look, Huawei needs to come into the Justice Department and do a deal to make up for its mistakes in Iran and other things for which it's liable. Uh, ZTE did that when they got in a similar situation. The price of reaching such a deal now is higher than it needed to be. And as part of that, if they come forward and make very important mitigations in their behavior and pay important fines, we can settle the case of the arrest of Meng Wanzhou on the side. I don't think there's any other way of doing it but that.
2: The Muslim world has been remarkably silent. Now Turkey is finally beginning to speak up about the treatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. What should the U.S. be doing?
4: I I think we're doing now uh, the best we can do, which is making information available, backing it up with photographs. You put it on an international agenda. You put it on the Chinese agenda, too. And uh, at least they then feel they have to explain policy and defend policy. Uh, But beyond that, there's not a whole lot we can do, frankly. And my guess is from the people I know in China who are Han Chinese, uh, this approach to Xinjiang is not uh, causing a lot of heartburn among the Han. Uh, So I don't think we have a constituency there that that, will be energized over this.
3: I think it's worth quickly noting that most Turkey has been the exception recently and Malaysia's Deputy Prime Minister has said something. But most of the, the majority Muslim countries. Have similar concerns about their own population that China does, and they actually sympathize with what China is doing.
2: Evan, should we have joined AIIB? Absolutely. Well, actually, (laughs) let me preface that. No, we we
7: couldn't. We here's the issue. Joining AIIB would have required the president to ask the Congress for an allocation. Never would have happened. Um, And in particular, when the Chinese asked us to join the AIB didn't actually exist right the articles of agreement didn't exist there's no way i could have walked into the oval office and said mr president there's this chinese bank let's go ahead and join it even though we don't actually know what we're committing ourselves to or what it's all about but you know it's a good way to signal that we want china to be part of the global governance strategy so I think that the, the, there's no no question in my assessment that the way we handled it was a mistake, because it created this impression that we were trying to kill the AIIB, which was not our strategy. Our strategy was to ensure that the AIIB was um, an international, uh, uh, adhered to international standards, and reinforced World Bank and IMF lending practices. Um, and that it wasn't a tool of Chinese foreign policy. And so the theory of the case was, we and other G7 economies should stay out while working with the Chinese, talking with the Chinese about what kind of standards would be necessary to make it an international institution, not a Chinese institution. That strategy got perceived as America's trying to kill AIIB and keep its allies out. That, I think, is what the policy failure was. All right. This is a yes-no question. Uh, should we
2: recreate the TPP and should America be part of that?
3: Emphatically, yes.
2: Yes. It's a no-brainer. Yes. That's why it's a yes-no question. Danny?
6: What does it mean to recreate the TPP? In other you words, to have the
2: TPP kind of the, I got, the language. I got a
6: news flash for you, Steve. The world has moved on. So it's, <laughs> it will never the happen. TPP, the U.S. could negotiate its way back into TPP. Expensive. Probably, not on identical terms, mm-hmm. I would predict. Uh, we have triggered uh, an adaptation in the region that has created now a block independent of the U.S. and China.
2: So that ship is sailed? We don't own
6: it. Yeah.
2: Evan? Agreed. Yes. Susan. All right, let me open the – I have another dozen questions, but I'm going to open the floor to, uh, to questions. and. Um, let's say, people who didn't. Maggie. Hi,
8: Maggie.
9: Maggie Lewis, Seton Hall. Uh, I want to return to Taiwan, uh, because last week, Shelley Rigger published an article in which she expressed concern about the possibility
6: of open conflict. And I've always looked to Shelley for a dose of optimism. And one of the concerns was mixed signals from DC. So what signals should
2: DC be sending
3: both in Taipei and Beijing to
2: hopefully decrease that potential for open conflict. Is that for me? Oh, Doug is probably okay. um, you know, for our, our AIT head.
3: Shelley Rieger did a great job in that article of identifying, actually it's the three corners that are fragile in our relationship right now. And The one point she did not make in there, so I'll add it to her argument, is that when In the past, U.S. and China relations have been solid and maybe improving. Taiwan has been able to expand its scope of activity, become a more accepted part of the international universe. And when the opposite has happened, Taiwan usually pays the price first. They get the most pressure from China. The last two years, pressure has been rising on Taiwan militarily, diplomatically, economically and politically. And there's no indication that I see from China they're going to let up. And now that we've gone to this phase post last week of abandoning abandoning the talks and imposing tariffs, China is less inhibited than it would have been a week ago about putting pressures, increasing pressures on Taiwan, including maybe even more displays of military capability and beyond. I know the PLA retirees are speaking for the PLA forces and arguing for increasing military pressure on Taiwan. This could break. Very easy. It's a dangerous part of the world for this sort of thing. So it would have been a good idea if we didn't descend into confrontation on trade or on all the other issues that we've gotten to. It would have been a good idea if China hadn't gone down the path it's gone down for the last 10 years. And I'm really not very hopeful. Uh, Within the administration today, there are more activists for doing things at a higher level with China than we've had in previous administrations. Taiwan in previous uh, administrations. Oddly enough, Trump has been the lid on the can. Uh, whatever reason it is, I'm not quite sure. I could get into details in private with you. But he, he, uh, he has kept his administration from expressing the feelings that are welling up within it at this point. I'm really worried that if he stops doing that, we could be in deep water fast.
2: And How will the elections that are about to occur affect this? Well, you've, in got, Taiwan.
3: you've got a series of candidates in both parties, all of whom are really not proficient on management of cross-strait relations. For the last 10 years, you've had two former Mainland Affairs Commission chairpersons presiding over things, and they knew where the red lines were and on which side to stay. Uh, that's not the case with these untested political figures who, much like our own politics two years ago, they're now w- welling up in the polls in Taiwan. And so it adds a great degree of unpredictability to the situation there.
2: Jerry, you got a microphone that'll come to you.
9: I was tempted until I heard Ken's I think pathetic response about Xinjiang to simply ask after this wonderful discussion about the mechanics, the negotiation the insider's problems of formulating and executing policy. That's all great, but you said at the outset we have no China policy now. Now this is a great group of people. What should our policy be? I'd like to hear that. After all this talk about organization, mechanics, misunderstanding, what should our policy be, we've got to walk out of here and know what we want. We're talking about specific issues. I couldn't disagree more, Ken, with saying that, that we're doing about all we can, on well, What should we be doing, Jerry? We should be doing a lot from the President. Of course, we have to improve our own policy toward Muslim people. But the President, the United States, the Secretary, everyone who speaks in every forum. And what about the consideration? Should Mr. uh, Chen uh, Guo have that applied to him, we can't apply it, of course, to Xi Jinping, although he's the one who uh, really is responsible for all this. There are many things we can do, should we stop American companies that are profiting from the equipment they're shipping to people who are the torturers in Xinjiang? We look back on FDR's weak response response to Hitler. And the plight of the Jews. I lost over 40 people in my family as the United States dilly dallied about how to respond before Hitler started killing them. What should we be doing? We can't be complacent about this. We ought to be speaking out. You talk about there's no clash of ideology or civilization, there is a clash between decency, international standards, between those who are. And those who are against them this is an ideological clash and we have to we just can't sit back and say we ignore what's happening these millions of people in Xinjiang and the fact that people in China who are Han aren't taking this seriously first of all what do they know second of all they've often been prejudiced against
0: these people you can't convert these people into Han people it's like trying to tell uh, the homosexual people, we're going to convert you into
9: heterosexual. Yeah. I think we can't, can't be content with this. I want to hear from experts that have a more positive outlook about what might be done.
0: Well, I'll take a stab at it. Um first of all you know I think even if the president's not raising human rights in his meetings with Chinese which I I believe he's probably not but I think a lot of other people in the administration of course are raising this issue personally I think the place to try to deal with this is at the UN and multilaterally there's a lot of outrage across the world not just in this room not just in the United States and I think that's you know, a mechanism that's well established for this exact kind of uh, outrageous and atrocious behavior and activity, and I think that is one where we ought to be, normally we're playing a leading role in that institution, we're not playing such a leading role now, we're kind of counting unfortunately on other countries to step forward and play the leading role in the UN and try to get independent rapporteurs into Xinjiang I think is is one thing that certainly others are making a big effort at trying to get get more transparency from the Chinese about what's going on over there I know some because of our pressure some journalists have gotten into these um, uh, camps and seen what's going on there recently in China so I mean that's the kind of thing that I think we as the international community can do I, I mean I I, I hesitate to um, you know, not say uh, anything about the comparison between what the Chinese are doing in Xinjiang and Hitler and the Nazis in Germany, because I'm not sure that that is adding to our understanding of what's happening there, but um, I agree that it's uh, atrocious and that everybody needs to come together and try to uh, put a lot of pressure on the Chinese to be more transparent, to, re- to revise and, and re structure what they're doing out there. They clearly, though, from conversations with very high-level Chinese about this, frequently over the last several months, I can tell you, they clearly think that this is about containing uh, a problem of potential terrorism in their country. I was told there were 1,200 bombings in Xinjiang in 2015 and 2016. Um, So they clearly have a domestic imperative, and as Ken said, I would certainly endorse his observation that the vast majority of Chinese people that I've talked to about this um, think that this is a prudent way for them to go about addressing this very serious, what they feel is a threat to their security. So, so did the
9: Germans feel about what the Nazis did to the Jews? Did that make Jerry? Right? I think
2: uh, Jerry. I think that my family had people that perished in the Holocaust also, and I don't think it's a good analogy. And at this point in time, to uh, to make an analogy between what's going on in Xinjiang, which I deplore, and what happened in the 30s in Germany is really not helpful. It's an exaggeration. Should they be doing it? No. Does it help in resolving the problem by making that analogy? I would argue it absolutely does not because the Chinese just go, we are not incinerating people. What are you talking about? That is what people are saying here. And by doing that, you're basically creating a narrative that is not helpful in resolving the problem that it's not the way we should go and it's an exaggeration that is that is repeated in every area of dealing with china whether it's ipr theft whether it's effects of state owned enterprises whether you name it you go and you find that there are these distortions and exaggerations, and by making that analogy, you in effect are participating in the exaggeration. If it moves in that direction, we will all stand up and scream, and we will cut off relations with China, and we should cut off relations, but we ain't close to there. Sorry. Um, We got some hands? Stanley.
8: Stanley Roth unaffiliated. Um, <laughs> I want to add to this discussion, but not from the point of Holocaust and we can have a competition who lost the most <laughs> relatives, but the truth is we all agree that what's happening is disgusting, <laughs> awful, getting worse, and needs to be addressed. I think one of the things that the administration hasn't done because it's too contemptuous is to use the Congress. I lived that as a staffer when I worked for Steve Solars and we went after Marcos on the salvagings and all kinds of human rights abuses. Doug has a lot of stories about how work was done even with Democrats in the Reagan days and in the Bush days to use the Congress as the bad cop, hold hearings, bring people to testify, get on national TV. Of course go multilateral has already been stated, but you end up in the position that then the administration goes and says the Congress is gonna cut off trade, the Congress is gonna prohibit us from having a summit, the Congress is gonna do all kinds of horrible things and work with us and then you form a secret channel and you try to make progress before a high level visit. So we do have to address it, and it's the ineptness of the Trump administration, at least, I'm sorry, the Trump president, see, as well as the lack of interest and the lack of concern about human rights issues that is part of the problem in managing the issue. Um, and I think we should deal with this outside the context of the Holocaust, because it's horrible enough on its own terms without being distracted by the debate. Which is worse, or is it going to become this?
2: Herb.
5: I wish to I- introduce a, a, a note of optimism, and, and that is uh, when, when I was in Hong Kong, before most of you were born, uh, we got word from pre- then President Kennedy's assistant that he wanted to do something on China, but don't send in any recommendations. Uh, just send in things, either CIA or the Foreign Service, about things that were changing and openings uh, um, among the leadership, but very, very low key. Uh, And we said to these visitors, when people came on airplanes that had propellers, uh, why is this? And he said, well, he is so taking it on the chin for the loss of Cuba, uh, and these guys are suffering for the loss of China, but he wants to see if he can get something you can do something. So we sent in little things and, and, and the White House would put out something you know, on Friday night, in the federal register as a technical change in some regulation. Nobody seemed to notice it and we got away with it. And then Kennedy was assassinated and uh, we were very busy. I was the duty officer and a lot went on. Well, then uh, LG came in and he had other things uh, on his mind uh, than China. Uh, then uh, Nixon wrote articles about how you can't ignore two-fifths of the world's population. People, The Republicans said, well, he'll never come back in. He's a Pepsi Cola vice president. We could ignore him. Uh, and then he got into office, and uh, on Rockefeller's recommendation, he got this funny professor from Harvard as his national security advisor. And I, Henry, uh, been my tutor. We're running and out of time, Herb. Well, I was just going to tell you how it all happened, but if you're too busy.
2: It's a long <laughs> story.
5: Anyway, Henry was not too intrigued, but it was the president who said, we've got to do something with the Chinese. Henry was a Europeanist, but we talked him into it, and we told him, you know, the first Chinese demonstration had been an anti-American demonstration because the, Japan, the German colonies had been given to the Japanese. Well, he knew, he knew about the Schleswig-Holstein Treaty, but he didn't know about that one. The point is that it was the president who wanted to do something. Al Haig said, don't worry. The military has had it in Korea. We're getting ha- murdered in Vietnam. We're not looking for another confrontation uh, in Asia. I'll handle the generals. and." we found a couple of congressmen and senators who said well if you guys got to propose something we might back you i'm, I'm bothering you people with, with all this history to suggest the things can look very very grim uh, uh the the democrats are not going to give nixon any credit my god it was the vietnam war and the republicans were more anti-communist than anything. but if someone high up in the government decides this is a useful thing to do, to have a decent relationship, or try to have a decent relationship with the Chinese, you can get something accomplished. But if there's no one at the top of the government, then you have to leave it entirely to Orleans and the National Committee.
2: (laughs) Any final comments, kind of getting to, this relationship is in a downward spiral, what do we do to uh, pull it out of it? We all unfortunately
3: have about 45 seconds each. Well, I think Susan touched on it uh, by talking about the UN. I would say we need to build coalitions of like minded countries. We've got two huge countries that have to disentangle co- competing interests, and we're going to have to take it on issue by issue. And where countries will work with us, let's form alliances or coalitions, and that may be different countries at different times on different issues. But we're, d- we're not even beginning to do that today. Yeah,
4: Ken? Yeah, I think that we need to uh, think through uh, approaches that will put this relationship on a better, uh, more stable, more uh, mutually beneficial course. Uh, But we're going to have to wait for political space to open up to actually move those things forward. But to sit here and say nothing can be done and so it's not worth trying to figure out what you would do if space opened up. Uh, is not going to be helpful. At the same time, to put a lot of these suggestions forward now will just subject them to ridicule by this administration. So, (laughs) tough.
6: I think if the Chinese would listen to the uh, uh, frustrated traditional supporters and stakeholders in the U.S.-China relationship who have largely given up or who uh, are in despair because of uh, their objections to Chinese behavior, Uh, they could cut through a lot of the static and confusion coming out of the White House and begin taking steps to address some of the very concrete problems. One is uh, the policy of treating all ethnic Chinese as if they are still the sons and daughters of the Yellow Emperor, in this case maybe the Red Emperor. And From the U.S. side, I think (laughs) that we need to focus on the sin, not the sinner, and concentrate on the problematic behavior and dealing with the behavior and not vilify the entire Chinese nation and the Chinese people. Evan.
7: Steve, I think as an institution and as people that are committed to the U.S.-China relationship, I think we first and foremost have to all accept the reality that we're in a new era, a new normal of persistent and consistent tensions in this relationship. Uh, There's responsibilities on both sides. um, But the Chinese certainly haven't helped their case, to Danny's point, about separating the sins from the sinners. And understand that in this new era of competition uh, that China policy is going to have to evolve, and that evolution unfortunately means we have to think more seriously and systematically about competitive strategies that seek to shape Chinese behavior where they're you know, inimical to our interests and to those you know, values, rules, and norms that have created an international order from which many in the world have benefited. I mean, Doug made the critical point that sometimes the best China policy is not what you do with China, but what you sort of, how you shape the environment around China to affect its incentives. And unless we think about what competitive strategies toward China look like, think about working with allies and partners and institutions globally, we're not gonna have a shot at this um, growing challenge of a rising China.
0: Yeah, For me, it's just very simple. What is it that we want? In the U.S.-China relationship, do we want to have an economic relationship with them or not? Do we want them to be our enemy or not? Um, to me, it's that simple. And then, if you can get an interna- a national consensus around that answer, you can work to build specific policies that get you there. But if you can't figure out what it is that you want, um, you know, do we want uh, primacy or do we want to have you know no coalitions course. in the region? I mean, there we're so confused I think Um, it's it's very hard for the no wonder it's very hard for the rest of the world and the Chinese to figure out what we're what we're doing
2: it's funny I you know herb you said we we, got to end on an optimistic note it's funny it's an optimistic and pessimistic note that in the end we're gonna need to confront crises in this world with the Chinese a great pay commander pay con commander said the greatest crisis is climate change the greatest threat is climate change and we're going to need to confront that with the chinese or there's going to be an epidemic a pandemic which we're going to need to confront with the chinese or there's going to be an economic crisis which we're going to need to confront with the chinese and there will be a groundswell in the end i don't know if it's tomorrow next year or five years from now where the people of both countries are going to understand that we need to work together to confront these global crises and that's gonna ultimately pull us together. So even though we're going through this incredibly difficult period, in the long term, and it's why the National Committee keeps working the way it does, because in the long term, it's the people of both countries who are gonna decide what the relationship is, and it's the people that are gonna demand a cooperative relationship. So that's the optimistic note I wanna end on. Thank you all for a wonderful, wonderful panel.